we've been working our way through the book of Exodus, and it's been really good, but it's been really slow. And that was a surprise to me as well. I actually had somebody uh, that came to service last week, and they were like, that was really cool. Are you doing one commandment a week? And I was like, I wasn't planning on it. I thought it was going to take me two weeks to do all of Exodus chapter 20. Uh, that was the amount of notes I had. We didn't even get close. Um, so I, yeah, someone asked me, how long is this going to take? I was like, great question. I got no idea. We're just going to keep going until we're done with it. Um, and maybe it's because some of you haven't been here in a while, and so we've been waiting for the Holy Spirit because he really wanted to teach you Exodus chapter 20, the second commandment. And so you're here now, so we can move along. We've waited for you. We're glad you made it. So that's kind of a joke, but maybe not. Maybe the Holy Spirit's got something for you this morning. Uh, just kind of a quick recap, um, since we're continuing with Exodus 20. Uh, if you didn't know, Exodus chapter 20 is the beginning of what is the Ten Commandments in your Bible, which I argued a couple weeks ago was is the most misunderstood portion of your Bible. Uh, people know about the Ten Commandments. They kind of have an idea that they're supposed to follow them, but they have a very bad misunderstanding of why that's important or, or what would be accomplished if they followed the Ten Commandments. And so... Um, what we talked about is the Ten Commandments are not written as a list of rules so that you could follow them to make God happy with you. That's just not the intention. That's not why they're there. Okay? The Ten Commandments are the terms of a covenant between God and his people. And if you miss the history of the book of Exodus up to this point, uh, it was very much like the only real picture that we have of a covenant in our culture in 2023, which is a marriage covenant. Right? So when you watch a wedding happening, you hear vows being exchanged, and that's kind of what's happening uh, in the Ten Commandments. These are the terms of the covenant. These are the vows, uh, or if you want a more marriage-y type of language, these are the ideal relational practices that will happen in this covenant relationship. This is what we are aiming for here as we come together. And just like in a marriage, uh, the groom has expressed his love for his bride, uh, he has practiced and demonstrated his, his love for his bride. His bride has accepted that love, has trusted the groom, and now has willingly uh, decided to engage in the covenant. That's what's happening here. This is not God's up in heaven like, hey, I'm going to send you all to hell if you don't follow these 10 rules. Got it? Capiche? Right? That's, this is not here. Okay? So um, God already loves these people. These are the ideal practices, and they're written for their good, okay, as they respond to God's love for them. They're not earning his favor uh, in any means by their obedience. So last week, we covered the first half of the second commandment. Not even the first half, like the first third of the second commandment. And you're like, oh, you weren't joking when you said you were going slow. Again, I apologize, just what we're going to do, okay? So we've covered in three weeks, one and one-third commands. So here we go. Sorry. Uh, Exodus chapter 20. Let's jump in. You shall, make for your, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. So that's the second commandment. That's the first half of the second commandment. We'll continue on today. But we talked about this idea last week. We're kind of running in because I ran out of time last week. Uh, we talked about the idea that Yahweh is a God who does not want to be worshipped with images. Okay, he said, don't make images. Don't make carvings. Don't make pictures. Don't make symbols. And 
Images and symbols are very easy to add to your life. We, this is recap. We talked about this all last week. You make a statue. You put it in your house. You make a symbol. You put it on a necklace. You wear it. Add it to the wardrobe. Right? We get tattoos. We put plaques on buildings, bumper stickers. Right? All of these are easy to add to your life, easy images to represent something. And God actually says, no, I don't want to be worshipped like that. That's the exact opposite of how I want to be worshipped. And so if that's not how God wants to be worshipped, how does he want to be responded to and related to? Well, if you go back up, look to verse 1 of chapter 20. It says this at the very beginning. And God spoke all of these words. So this is where we finished last week. If God's most foundational act was to speak to his people, then what is the proper response to someone who's speaking? It's to listen, right? If someone's speaking to you, then the appropriate response to that would be to listen. You know the most common prayer that has ever been prayed from your Bible? It actually it predates Christianity by a long ways. If you go back to the Jewish faith, uh, there's a prayer called the Shema. Has anybody ever heard that term before? Shema is just the Hebrew word uh, that, that prayer starts with because the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. It's Shema Israel, right? So that's how the prayer starts. And they say it all the time. Uh, and, and Christians actually continue to say it for a long period of time. But anyway, you know what the word Shema translates to? Hear. Hear, Israel. Right? So the most common prayer that the people of God have prayed since the history of humanity starts with the word hear or listen. That's exactly what we see, right? God is a God who represented himself by speaking. So our, the proper posture or response to that is to begin our heart posture by listening, okay? Fast forward a couple thousand years, right? When we get to the New Testament, this idea was not lost on the New Testament writers. If you're familiar at all with the book of John, he says Jesus is the word that became flesh. And then a little bit later in the book of Hebrews, it says God has spoken to us through his son. So these are all start the same idea. Even if you go back into the book of Genesis, right? God created the world. How did he create the world? Did he snap his fingers? Did he do the hokey pokey? Did he stomp his feet? He spoke and there was light, right? All of these things, God has chosen to reveal himself to us by speaking, okay? So this is the idea. The people of God believe God has spoken. And we have always been, even from pre-Jesus days, a people who base our identity on the fact that we believe our God is a God who has spoken, OK? And this is why it's a big deal. Because speaking and communication imply relationship. That's why you speak. You speak to communicate. Communication is the basis, the foundational block of relationship. If you don't communicate with someone, you cannot have relationship with them. So they follow a God who desires to speak to them and communicate with them because he's a God who desires to have relationship with them. And if that's the foundation, then what you end up with is worship that is based on the word of God, the speaking of God, the communication of God. It's relationship-based worship rather than image-based worship, which is what you would have if you carved a little image and put it in some corner of your house with candles and creepy other things, right? Image-based worship is easy to add to your life. It doesn't need to be surrendered to. It doesn't require relationship. And it breeds hypocrisy. 
and does nothing to actually transform your character and your heart and your life. And that's never the kind of worship that Yahweh has called his people into. In fact, he specifically forbids that type of worship. Now, again, remember where we are in the story. They were slaves in Egypt. They own nothing. They have no like recognized identity. Okay, they are nothing. Okay, they don't even have a land to call home. They have nothing to build their identity on except the idea that they are the people of a God who speaks. That's it. That's their identity. We are the people of the God who has spoken. Now, if you're like kind of a self-magnifying person like I am, but probably none of you are. You probably are very humble and love others. But me, right, I think of that, and the first thing I think is like, hmm, it's a little underwhelming to be honest, right? Can we have like an amazing, famous, powerful, like leader figure that maybe is our king? Could we be that country, right? Can we have like an amazing homeland? Like, can we have like, I don't know, like Mount Everest or the Grand Canyon? Can we get like some cool place, the beach at all? Like, can we have any of these things be our identity, right? These things that would, you know, make us well known. Can we be a political power maybe, have a lot of people or technological advances or I don't know, any of these other things that define a people? Can we not just be the people of the God who spoke? It's kind of how people are wired, right? And it's a little bit of a letdown because we kind of wish that we could make our identity based on something that could give us a little more bang for our buck, right? Some power, some influence, some envy from our neighbors, maybe even some wealth or some comfort. Can we at least be like the oil country? They seem to be killing it, right? Owning things. And so all of these things are not what the people of God are called to be. And here's what everyone finds when they pursue those other things. If they wish to trade in the God who speaks for a powerful nation or a political power or a wealthy kingdom, what they find is wealth cannot speak to and comfort the soul, especially when it's downtrodden. What they found is power cannot heal the hurts and wounds that we encounter in our lives through relationship. Material possessions don't fill the emptiness that people feel, like Midlife crisis, right? Every time you see a bald guy that's in his 60s driving a new Corvette, you go, guess it's not working, right? Because we go through these midlife crises where we get to this point where like, I got a lot of stuff and it hasn't filled me. I got to change everything because it's not working, right? Comfort and convenience and status cannot speak love and purpose into the heart of a human. So no, our God has not promised to do the things we think we want him to do. Can't you make us powerful? Can't you make us wealthy? Can't you make us comfortable? Can't you make my life convenient? Can't I be annoyed a little less? Can I not be stressed out, right? We want him to fix all these things, but he hasn't promised to be that type of a God. He's actually promised to be a better God than that. He's promised to be the God who has spoken. And so if that's the case, then learning to hear God is the most important thing you will ever learn to do. You should write that down. Even if it's our Bible, the next person who reads it probably needs to know it too, right? Learning to hear God is the most important thing you will ever learn to do. Communication is one of those things 
that we all know is a big deal and we all just assume we're good at it or that it's happening or that, yeah, they heard what I said or I'm hearing what they're saying. And if you've ever been like in an organization or tried to be married for a minute, you know that that's always false. Right? Like, yeah, it's fine. We got it. We understand each other. And like, you talk for a little bit. Like, I don't think I understand at all. Right? And yet, when it comes to God, people are just like, I'm pretty sure I got what he's saying. Did you spend any time thinking about that? Praying, asking, reading? No, I'm pretty sure we're good. We have an understanding. Like, I hope so. Because there's a lot riding on it, seeing that he is the God who has revealed himself primarily as him speaking. Now, we continue on in uh, the second commandment, and this is where we've kind of made a mess for ourselves, uh, and it's caused us a misunderstanding of well, a lot of what's going on here, okay? Who could recite the Ten Commandments if I gave you a little bit, right? A few of you. Like, yeah, you, you guys are very humble. You're like this kind of, you don't want me to actually call on you, but right? We get it, right? If you had like a group of friends and you're like, what were the Ten Commandments again? You'd probably come up with them. Most of us would, right? Or at least a couple of them. Don't lie in there somewhere, right? And then ends with something about coveting, right? But if we were to do the summary, like most people do, like the Sunday school version of the Second Commandment, what would it be? Who remembers? No idols. Thank you, right? You guys are scared. That's okay. It's all right. They're not as judgy as they look, right? You can speak in front of them. They're nice. Okay, no idols, right? Who would say, like, yeah, that's the summary I remember from when I was a child? Okay, I'm going to stop doing that. No more feedback. You guys are, it's okay. It's fine. It's not a big deal. That's kind of the summary version. No idols, right? And when we picture idols, we picture, like, some old guy, like, carving something out of a tree or, you know, maybe a piece of stone, and then he puts it in, like, the corner of his house, and it's got, like, a little shrine, and there's maybe some pictures and candles, and it's a little odd and weird, but we're all like, I don't have any of those, so I'm good, right? Second commandment, check, right? No weird corners of my house with little statues in it. But read that again. Read the second commandment again. Do you think the biggest thing to the heart of God is that you don't carve anything? Is he against carving altogether? He's like, just don't make images. No pictures, no images. Is that the summary? No idols? Is that, is that what's most important to the heart of God? I, I'm going to do a, a little something here. Maybe it's weird. Maybe it's not. See if it's helpful to you. I've rewritten the first two commandments as if they were wedding vows. And I want you to see if they make sense the way I've written them in terms of a wedding. So picture you're at a wedding, okay? There's a bride and groom up here. And the first commandment sounds like this. Do you, bride, promise to surrender your romantic love for all others in commitment to this groom? Does that sound pretty normal? How many of you would be like, man, legalistic, None of you, right? Because it's beautiful at a wedding. But anyway, uh, so that's the first commandment, okay? We're, we're good there. Second commandment. Do you, bride, agree to not keep pictures, trinkets, or habits that serve as reminders of your affection and care for previous boyfriends and loves? I do. And, and how many of you would be like, really? No, that's pretty understandable, right? Can you give up all the things that remind you of other people you've loved in pursuit of this marriage covenant? Is that okay? Is that normal? Is that acceptable? 
right? Does anybody have, if you heard that at a wedding, would you have a problem with it? If there was a woman here who's like, I always wear number seven because my junior high boyfriend, Tommy, wore number seven on the football team. I'd be like, grow up, you're married, and Tommy's family thinks it's weird. Stop, <laughs> right? Don't do things that remind you of Tommy, okay? You're married now. Stop doing that, okay? So that's the point. The point is not necessarily the image or the picture. The point is that the image or the picture stirs your heart to affection for something that is not God. Okay, so if you continue down, right, read the commandment again, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or a likeness or anything that is in heaven or above or is under the earth beneath or is in the water under the earth. Verse 5, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Bow down to them or serve them. That word bow down, that's a literal word picture of like bowing down, but usually that's translated worship. It's the idea of when you bow down to a king, you submit to, you're serving, you're humbling yourself, you're giving up, right, submitting your life to the whim and whimsy of whatever that king or thing you're bowing down to is. You're surrendering, right? Bowing down is a position of surrender. And this is what the commandment is all about. You shouldn't be surrendering your life to these things that are not me. Don't be trading the, the power and the resources and the energy of your life to these things that cannot give you what they promise. That's the point of the commandment. So when we summarize and we're like, no idols, be like, eh. Don't bow down and serve stuff. And don't make images that cause you, don't, don't put distractions in your life that will stir your heart and remind you of the affections or tempt you to bow down and serve a thing that is not me. That's the point of the commandment, right? We think to ourselves, well, I don't have any wooden statues in my life, so I'm fine. Eh. You've submitted yourself to a life in pursuit of money. You've spent hours and hours daydreaming how much life you're, how much better your life would be if you had this or if this situation was different or my life would be fixed if this was better or if I had a different spouse or if she had a different idea, right? We've surrendered time and energy and resources to pursue pleasure so we can distract ourselves from the dissatisfaction of our lives. Those are the types of things he's talking about in the second commandment. This is not primarily a command about little carved statues. It's primarily a command about the heart condition that submits itself to the pursuit of things that are not Yahweh. You should probably underline bow down and serve in your Bible or our Bible. That's the summary of this commandment. It's not primarily about no idols. Okay, so we're almost done. This is great. We're gonna make it all the way through the second commandment today. I mean, that's, that's prideful, but I'm happy with myself. Okay. So God primarily reveals himself as a God who speaks. Okay? Is that good news or bad news? Maybe. You're like, depends on what he wants to say, right? Uh, and lots of people think that God has this primary posture of judgment and anger, right? And so if he's just going to make me feel really bad about everything in my life, then I've probably got better stuff to do. Like, I heard the lake's nice this time of year, right? So people are not that interested in hearing what God has to say if they think the primary message from God is going to be discouraging and guilt-leaving. Leaving, that didn't make sense, but whatever. You get it. 
making you feel more guilty. Um, but if he has some helpful things to say, right? Yeah, maybe I'll listen to what he has to say. Well, what we have here is we have this little sentence attached to the end of the second commandment that gives us a glimpse into the character of God and would tell us the types of things he is likely to say if he is going to speak to us. So, uh, now, we don't do ourselves any favors, again, in the way this is translated, but I think it's, if we just take some time to think about it, it'll, it'll make a little more sense to us. Here's the way it says it in English, okay? I'm only going to read it in English. You're like, in English? Is he going to read it in different language? No, I'm not. I am the Lord your God, verse 5. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Okay, be honest with me. How many of you read that, and the first thing you think about is the visiting the children's iniquity, like my father's iniquity, like kids getting punished for what their dads did, and that bothers you? One of you, you guys are so much liars. Okay, I said earlier I wasn't going to have you raise your hands. I should have stepped with that. Okay, it bothers me. Maybe it didn't bother you. You're more spiritual than me, right? I read that and I'm like, wait, what? I'm going to have to pay for what my dad did? That doesn't seem right. Well, I'm going to have to pay for the sins of my fathers and we're, God's now punishing kids for what their dads did? That seems messed up. Like, I don't think that's the kind of God I want to serve. That seems not like the God that should be. But that's not the whole sentence. And can we all agree if we take half of somebody's sentence, we probably don't get a great understanding of what they're trying to say? OK, so the second half of the sentence, verse 6, says steadfast love to thousands. So there's visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of their children. And then the next half of the verse uh, of the sentence says steadfast love to thousands. So if you were to summarize this as one big idea with two parts, the first part of the big idea is iniquity third and fourth generation, second part of the big idea is steadfast love to thousands. Okay, that's the whole idea. So if you had like one of those old timey scales that, you know, that's like Supreme Court scales, it's like this, or if you're less educated, think of a teeter totter, right? So if you put three or four of something on one end of the teeter totter and thousands of the same thing on the other end of the teeter totter, what does that teeter totter look like? It's heavily outweighed toward the thousands. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? That's the picture here, OK? The steadfast love of God is incomparable to the justice and, and judging of iniquity of God. Now, some of you are like, can't God just skip the judging of iniquity part? It would make me feel better if he just said, I only think great thoughts towards you. The judging of iniquity part of the character of God is there because of his love for humanity, OK? God, if that wasn't there, then you and I might misunderstand the world that we live in as if God was OK with what's happening here. And that's just not the case. If you've lived for two days in this world and you have watched what takes place between people and how people are treated and what happens on this earth, you know that something is broken and not right. And the good news is God completely agrees with you. He's not OK with how this works. He's not OK with what's happening here. There is a justice that is unfulfilled. If you've ever looked at something in this world and be like, that's not right. Somebody needs to do something about that. 
then you're, that's what you're recognizing is the same part of the heart of God that is judging the iniquity of the fathers on their children. And what he's saying here is, I will spend a long time, three or four generations if necessary, to remove the sin out of this world so that it no longer wounds and hurts my people. We live in a pretty messed up world. And if God never called anything wrong or disciplined anybody or stood up for justice, then we might assume that he doesn't care. And, and there's not much worse a feeling if you've ever had something bad happen to you than feeling not only that something bad happened to you, but that nobody cares, right? God not only cares, he cares deeply where he will work through generation upon generation to remove that type of thing so his people don't have to experience that any longer, right? His care for justice is deep and broad and wide and all-encompassing, and it's not just going to end with one person and their failures and faults. He's going to root out the sin if it takes him generations to do so. That's great. That's great news. It's really good and loving news if you've ever been hurt by anybody in this world or if you've ever experienced tra tragedy or loss or pain or injustice. There's a God who is not fine with the sin of this world and he's going to spend a lot of time rooting it out of this world if that's what it takes. Now, his nature is also steadfast love. So there's kind of this tension, right, between justice and steadfast love. Like he's standing up for what is right. In fact, we were singing that song earlier. Uh, and the second verse started off, who rules the nations with truth and justice? Right? There was this justice that he stands up for. But then the course of the song was, this is amazing love. Right? He's going to call sin wrong every time he sees it. He's going to convict your heart when you walk into things that are dangerous and bad and harmful for you every time because of his love for you. Good fathers discipline their children. If, you're, if my kid's running in the street, I'm going to get him out of the street. I'm going to yell if necessary. Get out of the street. There's cars. And I might even spank them. And some of you might leave the church because I said that. But I don't want my kid to get hit by a car because I love them. Okay, so if God, if that's my heart and I'm sinful, messed up, and wicked, right, how much more me being created in the image of God, although it's broken and corrupt, right, that imaging of God that he created me with is standing up for justice because he loves his people. He's going to tell them when they're walking in things that are not good for them. But his nature is also steadfast love. And if you pay attention to that word picture, on one side we have three or four and on the other side, we have thousands. Think about, I just was thinking about that as I was studying this week. Like if I were to draw this, right? And on one side of the scale, I had to draw three or four pieces of something. And on the other side, I had to draw at least 2,000. Because if you went to public school like I did, that's thousands is plural. So it's at least two, right? So 2,000 pieces. That would take a long time, right? It's not comparable. It's not, it's not like, oh, it's close. We're like, a few more years and we'll get there. No, all of humanity up to this point produced three or four towards the justice of God and thousands 
in the love of God. Maybe you've never thought of it like this. Justice is finite. You realize that? Justice can only take place if there was an injustice. Right? So if I break a law, then justice would have a demand that there was reconciliation or you know, whatever needs to take place, redemption, so that that law that I broke was paid for. And then justice is satisfied. Justice does not have any more demands on me after I pay for the law that I broke. And so it's a big number, but there is a finite amount of injustice that has existed from the beginning of the world. Right? And once that is reconciled, once that is redeemed, once that is propitiated, once the judicial system has taken place, right, the justice is satisfied. There will be someday an end to injustice when all injustices have been made right. Love is not that way. Love is infinite. Love is potential. Right? Love does not have a number that it needs to meet. Right? If it did, our marriages would suck. Right? Well, there's 38 things I'm going to do to prove I love you, and then I'm good. Right? No, it's infinite. Right? I promise to love you until we die. As many opportunities as there are to express our love as, until we die, I'm going to do that. Love is infinite in that way where justice is not. So the scale is not balanced. Okay, so we're here this morning and we take, we could take comfort in the fact that God is just and he stands up for the hurting and broken and what is not right in the world, but also that his love is incomparable in comparison to the justice. Okay, so let's do this to close. Go back to the idea of Yahweh being a God who speaks. What do you think a God with the type of character that we just talked about Justice to three or four, love to thousands. What do you think a God like that would say? If God's character was overwhelming, steadfast love for people, a God whose nature is love, yet a God who out of his deep love was also moved to stand for justice, what would it sound like if a God like that spoke? Would he, would he speak primarily in anger? Would he speak primarily guilt? An unmet expectation? But you know, you've really been messing up in most areas. You, you pretty much don't do anything right. I'm glad you came to church this morning. Is, is that what he would speak, right? Would he be primarily concerned with making you feel like you haven't done enough? Because religious people have been telling us that what God is primarily saying is that you should feel guilty and feel bad that you haven't done enough for him for a really long time. I mean, that's been how we do things for like 2,000 years. It's like, well, they're going to come in, tell them all they should feel bad, and then send them home with a song. Right? That's how church and religion has operated for a long time. It's just, it's not in here. It's, it's not in here. Right? Yeah, there are going to be moments where God is convicting, but it's not comparable to his steadfast love. So no, he's not going to turn away from your sin. He's not going to be like, oh yeah, you're giving your lives to things that'll kill you. That's fine with me. But he is going to communicate primarily love. If I'm reading this right, we can expect a God with this type of character to speak profoundly loving truth, overwhelmingly loving even. Like, whoa, I can't even handle it. That's so much care for me and love, right? He'll, 
at the same time, he will convict where necessary to root things out of your life that will hurt you and others. But this little glimpse of the character of God is connected to the back end of the second commandment because we pursue things that can't give us any of that love. We make these idols, right? When we make an idol out of wealth or success or power, it doesn't love us. There's no steadfast love to thousands. There's no justice when we pursue money, when we submit ourselves to entertainment or distraction or, or whatever we're chasing with all of our heart and mind and soul, and strength, right? None of those things can give us what they promise because they don't love us. They don't have the capacity to love us. That's why this little truth about the character of God is attached to the back end of the second commandment because he's like, guys, you're chasing things that are going to, they're a death sentence. They're not even going to give you what you think they're going to give you. Wealth doesn't love you. Pleasure doesn't love you. Go down the list. Control. Lots of people do crazy things to feel like they're in control. You do all this stuff to submit your life to the pursuit of control. You think you'll feel better, but guess what? Control has no capacity to make you feel loved and accepted and valued. And you would think, like, with the way people are, like, trying to control things, like, does that fix your life? <laughs> Anybody have control problems? Don't raise your hand. You're already not into that. I get it, right? But did it make you feel better when you got into control? No, it didn't, right? So what's the second commandment? Don't bow down to or surrender to things. Don't trade your life in pursuit of what cannot offer you the love of God. That's where we're going to finish this morning. We will talk about, uh, I'm actually really excited for the next two commandments. Uh, they're going to be really great. Um, but we're going to finish here this morning because I'm almost on time. So let's pray.